Well, I wrote a question down. Sometimes I start my lessons with questions um, and uh, the way of introducing the subject. And I wrote a question down at the beginning of my lesson that I thought, this is, this is how I'm going to begin it. And now after I look at the question, I realize it's rather rhetorical. My question was, are you rejoicing? And after, uh, after April McCarrick's news, I think we all are. Uh, so I don't think I have to know that I have to answer, get an answer for that question. But that's a pretty important question from the standpoint of the overall life of the Christian, whether or not we are characterized by joy uh, in our life. Uh, certainly what we would conclude uh, is that as children of God, as people that gather even to worship God, that we have a lot of reasons to be happy and to be glad and to rejoice. The psalmist said in the 35th Psalm, verse 9, And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. Uh, and his salvation there is not talking about God being saved, but me being saved and you being saved, and that God provides that salvation. As you know, if you've been here for uh, some time this, this year, we've been studying through the book of Philippians and, uh, and, and our sermons together. And the book of Philippians is known sometimes as the epistle of joy, uh, because the, enorm- the, the enormous amount of rejoicing that goes on throughout the book, not only in terms of Paul's expression of his own joy, but as many times in the book that he talks about uh, and commands the aspect of joy. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the word joy or rejoice or rejoicing appears 16 times in this rather short epistle. So in our study through this particular book this year, we have come across that many times and encountered different reasons why. Christians ought to rejoice, and maybe why Paul was rejoicing, and the Philippians had a reason to rejoice. What we recognize is that that, uh, that has been a rather uh, uh, somewhat, in look at the context of it, it's been somewhat unusual that we would find joy in rejoicing mentioned so many times, because if we have it right, Paul's probably writing this letter, uh, not only... Uh, near the end of his life, but very possibly from a Roman imprisonment um, and under the custody of Roman guards. Uh, and if that's true, uh, I think he probably he wrote it from prison, whether it's Caesarea or Rome. If that's true, then there weren't a lot of reasons in the immediate circumstance why Paul should have been joyful. And yet over and over again, he tells us that he is, and he calls others to rejoice as well. The last appearance of the word joy... Uh, or rejoice as it is found in the context in this book is in chapter 4 in verse 10 and I want to begin there uh, this morning we're going to read uh, several verses as we begin our lesson together uh, and we'll take a look at these verses Philippians chapter 4 verse 10 the apostle says but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again that though, though you surely did care but you lacked opportunity Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everything and all things. I have learned both to be full and be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I have seen seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Ephroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
This section, of course, is we've looked at some of the verses in this section, so we're not going to cover everything that is here, but this section at the end of the book, as it is many times in Paul's epistles, becomes rather personal. And then many times at the end of a book he mentions individuals or he speaks about his relationship to the people that he's writing to. And there's a personal note to an epistle, just like there would be, no doubt, in a letter that you and I might write uh, to someone that we know well. Uh, the Philippian church had a very a close relationship with the apostle. Uh, and in the context here, he speaks about not only his relationship and why he was, they were dear to him, but he also speaks about, as we mentioned, the context that he's rejoicing over them and their relationship to God and what specifically what they had done. And so he starts out by saying here that I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. The apostle was not just sort of joyful. He wasn't just a kind of rejoicing. He was rejoicing greatly. Uh, and the reason why he was rejoicing, no doubt, has, as, he, as it relates uh, in this particular text, has to do with the spiritual relationship that he has with God, and maybe more specifically, the spiritual relationship that these Christians had with God. Uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't reflect his physical circumstance. As we mentioned, he's probably in Roman custody, uh, and we ask in the context when you say you have rejoiced greatly, uh, what are you talking about? Well, we notice in the context that this particular, uh, that his statement here is in the past tense, that the verb is in the past tense. And he's saying, there's a reason why I rejoiced in the past, that I've been happy about something in the past. And he rejoiced over something that happened earlier. We learned from the following verses that uh, Paul had received a gift from the church. They had sent to him. And, when he, and because he had received this gift then, his circumstances were somewhat improved. Or at least, he, he says at the end of this text, he had what he needs, that his needs has been met. Well, what we're going to notice, I think, that uh, even though he received a gift, and who wouldn't be joyful receiving a gift? And even though that gift had facilitated his ability, ability to be satisfied with the circumstances that he had, that wasn't the real reason why Paul was making the statement here, that he's rejoicing greatly. He did rejoice to receive the gift, but it wasn't just the gift itself. It was more. They were, it indicates in this text, or Paul indicates in this text, that the church at Philippi had been concerned about Paul, uh, and that they'd been thinking about him, and they'd been uh, they'd been concerned about his circumstances, his physical circumstances. And it says, and he, he says in here that it, uh, that now at length you have revived your thought for me. He says, I rejoiced in the past before what you've done, and now you have revived your thought or your concern for me. And he uses a verb here, the, the Greek word anathalo, which means to shoot up or to sprout again, to grow again, to come back to life. Some translations use the word flourish. The word for care, or the, he uses the word here thought in some translations, uh, phroneo, means to to be mindful of something or to put your mind on something, to be concerned about something. And it's the aspect of an, an intense concern in a certain direction. Paul uses it in the negative sense earlier in the book when he talks about the carnal man who sets his mind on the earthly things. Here he uses that word to talk about the Philippians who've been mindful of him, who've been thinking about him, been concerned about him. And now he says that's come, that, that's flourished again. That's come up to the front or it's become prominent that you think about me because now at this last time you, have, you are willing to send to me and to provide for me. And so the recent gift that the Philippians had been able to provide for Paul was evidence that they were thinking about him, that they were concerned about him. And he was 
joyful for that. I think certainly that's one reason why Paul is very joyful is because he recognizes that there are folks that he's not around at this particular time that he doesn't have a, a, a close proximity to who are thinking about him. And sometimes we express that too. Somebody goes away on a trip or maybe someone that we don't see a lot, uh, a friend that's far away, and we'll send them a little note that I'm thinking about you. Why do we tell them that we're thinking about them? What's the purpose of that? Well, it's to encourage them, but also to make them joyful in the fact that they know that we're thinking about them, that they're in our thoughts. The same thing, I think, is present here. Paul recognizes that here's these Christians that uh, are far away from him, that he's in their minds, he's concerned about them. And he goes on to say in this, in this aspect that their concern now had been revived. He, he makes a point that he, that he knows they've always been thinking about them, not that they had, uh, this, not that they had stopped thinking about them. In fact, the, the, uh, the terminology here is rather intriguing. Uh, although they had been prohibited from sending to Paul, he says that you lacked opportunity. He says, now I know that you're thinking about me because your thoughts have flourished. And the idea is not that they didn't think about him and now that they are. But they had always been thinking about them, but they weren't able to do anything about it. That they didn't have the opportunity. Something prohibited them from expressing their concern by sending something to him. And he goes on to say in this particular context that they were that this particular church you see uh, was a church that had that had been special to Paul because they'd been able and willing to send to his need. When he left Macedonia, no church provided for him, he says, except for the church at Philippi. And they sent to him more than once. In a time when Paul was telling other churches, don't send to me and refusing you be supported because of particular reasons that he had, it tells us here that the church at Philippi was willing to send to him and did send to him and help supply for his needs. So if you put that all together, you recognize when Paul says, I greatly rejoiced at the end of this letter to these Christians that we can understand why. But was it the reception of the gift itself that made Paul happy? Was that the reason why he was glad? Well, I think yes and no. Certainly he was glad that the church had evidenced their concern by sending something and providing for him. But there's something deeper here, and that's really what I want to explore a little bit in our thinking this morning. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You know who said that? You know, sometimes we, we, we make... We come to know proverbial sayings or quotes and we, we really don't know who said them first or who attributed to them. The Apostle Paul tells us in Acts chapter 20 verse 35 that Jesus said, or the Lord said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul attributes those words to Jesus and yet you go back and you look in the Gospels and you can't find any place where Jesus actually said that. This is an intriguing thing because this quotation in Acts chapter 20 verse 35 is the only quotation recorded outside the Gospels of a statement spoken by Jesus while he was here on earth. And so here's something that Jesus said evidently in his ministry that became so well known that Paul's able to say in Acts chapter 20 of the elder Ephesians, you know Jesus said this. That it was almost proverbial by the time that Paul writes, Paul speaks to the church, to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, that Jesus emphasized the aspect of the blessedness of giving over receiving. Now that's Paul's point here, isn't it? At the end of Philippians. That there's joy and there's gladness to be had when one person gives to another. But that the real point of the matter is that joy doesn't come by receiving a gift. That it's more blessed to give a gift than it is to receive. And the word blessed in Jesus, in the quotation from Jesus, 
It's the same word he uses in the Beatitudes where he talks about blessed are the pure in heart and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness where he describes the aspect of a fulfilled life, what fills things, fills your life up and makes you satisfied. He says in another statement is that you give and not just receive. So the idea of blessedness, being blessed, is the idea of joyfulness. It's the idea of gladness and rejoicing. So it's more joyful to give than it is to receive. And that's what Paul, I believe, is saying. That his joy went deeper than the fact that he received something from them, a monetary contribution. He rejoiced more in their willingness to give than in the opportunity to receive. And he starts that out by telling them first that what this is evidence of is that you've always been concerned about me. You ever received a gift, maybe one that you really didn't need, and you, your response to that gift was, well, it was the thought that counted. <laughs> Sometimes we say that now, and people, and people immediately realize, well, he didn't really like it, he just said it was the thought that counted. That's not what Paul's saying here, but it is what Paul says. That it is the thought that counts, isn't it? That when you look at the aspect of giving and receiving, what's at the heart of receiving a gift from someone is it says something about the person's feelings towards you. Uh, It says something about the relationship that exists. It says something about what they want for you more than what you want for yourself. It seems to me that these verses that that we're studying here could be subdivided maybe into Paul's expression of joy with three explanations to clarify the reason why, the real source of joy as to why he was rejoicing concerning their support of him. And there's a real lesson in this, I believe, on the value of giving and receiving, on the joy that comes from giving and receiving. What Paul says here is that he's making mention of this at the end of this letter, not because he wants, not not because he needed in, in any way necessarily what they were sending. Paul was appreciative of the gift, But the improvement in his personal circumstances, the relief from want, was not the deepest reason for the joy. So he explains that by saying, (coughs) my rejoicing is not spoken of or expressed from a perspective of the need that I have being fulfilled. The apostle's joy is rooted in the blessing of the one who gave it, rather than the one who received it. Now, that's what the thought I believe that's developed in this context. And we have to understand that what he says about contentment here, we've already talked about contentment in these verses. What he says about personal contentment is the reason why he can make the conclusions, it does make the conclusions about rejoicing on behalf of the, of the giver more than behalf of the receiver. Because Paul was able to look at even the supply of his need, someone giving to him, on the basis of the fact that this was something that did not control his joy. That he learned how to be content. And so this aspect of joy, a deeper joy over the very element of someone giving a gift from the spiritual perspective is possible only if a person is content in their life. And so Paul says, I've learned whatever state I am to be content. I know how to abase and I know how to abound. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's that passage that passage we're going to look at, the Lord willing, next month in verse 13 that's so familiar to us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And sometimes we take that verse... And we rip it out of its context and we use it in the context of whether or not a person, God will help me hit a baseball or hit a golf ball well or whether or not he'll help me get through this particular uh, personal crisis. And those may or may not be applications of this passage, but certainly they're not contextual applications of this passage. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's not talking about 
athletic competition. He's talking about being satisfied with the gifts of God in the context of rejoicing over the things that people ought to really rejoice over in life. And that's a greater challenge than the athletic competition we face this with. The idea of whether or not I will be satisfied. And he says, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. When we talked about contentment a few weeks ago, we defined it as a peaceful satisfaction with the blessing God has already provided, regardless of what may or may not be gained in the future. So Paul was satisfied. He's satisfied with his circumstance, whether it was a circumstance of plenty, where he had more than he needed, or whether it was a circumstance of one where he didn't have enough to fill his needs. That he would be satisfied with what God was providing, and that gave him the power to draw from a deeper source this aspect of the joy in his life. And so it is with us. If I can only judge the value that I place on a gift by whether or not it satisfies my wants or even my needs, then I, you see, handcuff myself in being able to really have continuing, constant joy. Because not everything that comes to me satisfies my needs. People might have a great desire to do for me, whether physically or emotionally or financially. To do for me the things that I to satisfy my needs, and they may, they may fall short, and we may try to do that with other individuals, and we may fall short as well. So if we're sitting around thinking about what's valuable in life by whether or not we're getting what we need, we're not going to be very joyful people. We're not going to be a real source for true continuing joy. It's only when I'm first able to be content, whatever happens, content and satisfied with life, that then I can judge what happens with other individuals giving to me on a deeper basis. And that is I can rejoice, as Paul did, over the fact that they gave to me out of their heart and that what God, provide, what God provided in the commandment for them to give was a blessing for them and not just me. Some of the, I think, steps towards contentment, and we'll just mention a couple of these because we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, I think that, uh, that might come from this text, and maybe this is another lesson uh, that we'll look at another time is that a person has to make an unconditional commitment that they're going to be satisfied. Contentment is not something that comes naturally. It's not something that's going to be derived necessarily. You see this aspect of my circumstance and even reflecting on my circumstance. I have to tell myself up front and make a commitment that I'm going to be satisfied with the gifts that God gives. I have to learn to give rather than trying to get. That contentment also follows with the idea that I'm going to try to give things away or provide for other individuals rather than be focused on simply whether or not I have for myself. And I have to subtract from my needs. And sometimes that might involve physically subtracting from my needs. But certainly the aspect here of recognizing that God provides the spiritual things in life that are more important. And that's hard to do when our society is so based on physical provisions. But then I have to accept what God gives. And that's the whole essence of contentment. But in, in verse 14... Paul says, verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you said, aid once and again for my necessities. Now I'm convinced here that Paul didn't want to be misunderstood. It's easy, to get, it's easy for that to happen. Sometimes when someone gives you a gift and you're trying to say thank you, sometimes you can say the wrong thing. People get the wrong impression. Paul did not want to be misunderstood. He was content and he was rejoiceful of the fact that he received the gift, but he didn't want them to think that that gift was lightly esteemed or considered to be of no importance because he was pushing it further beyond just the reception of the gift. So you, someone gives you a gift and you say, oh, I've got everything I need. That might pe- make people think that you really don't appreciate the gift and that's not what Paul wants them to do. So he makes a spiritual assessment here, relays it to them. 
and says that when you gave to me, you have done well. You did the right thing. The word for well is the word kalos, which means beautiful or excellent or noble sometimes in some translations. But it's also a word translated sometimes and many times by the word good, which carries with it the idea of moral good. That something that was well, by the use of this term, was something that was morally right. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Talk about something that was intrinsically morally right to be done. James says that if we we love our neighbor as ourselves, we do well. And there's the word kalos. We do right. goes on to talk about the, 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 uh, the law of righteousness in that context. So the idea I see of doing right, of Paul saying that they did well, was not only that they did something that was appropriate, and certainly they did, Paul was in need, they sent to it, but I believe he's also telling them that what you did was morally right, it was what God wanted you to do. Well, why was it a good thing for them to send money to Paul, to send a contribution to Paul? Well, he gives a couple of reasons here. He says, you you done well and that you shared with me in my hardship, verse 14. When they gave money to Paul in his distress, they were sharing in it. Now they gave to relieve it. They gave to make it so that it wasn't so hard on Paul, yet when they contributed to it, they were actually sharing in that hardship. They were not personally with Paul. They didn't join him in the prison there. But they shared it in the sense, you see, that they gave support to him while he was in that context. And the same thing applies when we help others. How do we have compassion on another person? How do we share with them in their afflictions? Well, we might have the opportunity to actually bear a burden by going and participating with them in that difficult circumstance. But if that's not possible, as it was not for the Philippians, then Paul says you can share in someone's hardship by supporting them in that hardship. By giving them financial support if they need it, by giving them encouragement, emotional support. That that's a sharing with the hardship and the things that are provided. And Paul says, that's good, you did that, that we shared together. But he also says in this context, you shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, in verse 15. He uses the phrase again, the same phrase in, different, in a different compound form, the aspect of fellowship, the word koneo, which means the idea here of participating with someone or sharing with someone in an experience or in a state. So Paul says, you have provided for me when I left Macedonia to preach the gospel and that the gifts that you provided that were voluntary and that were of your own free will were in essence a sharing or a fellowship in the giving of receiving. Giving giving and receiving. Uh, In a sense, you see, Paul was, and by pointing this out, I believe, uh, making clear that the Philippian church was unique, that they distinguished themselves from the other churches because of the fact they were willing to give free will offerings to Paul in a personal sense and Paul was not untouched by that he was certainly grateful for that but Paul uses an accounting metaphor here which is interesting uh, in this context he's going to come back to it uh, again later on in the text but what were they doing when Paul was sending support to Paul when Philippi was sending support to Paul to preach the gospel he says there was giving and receiving going on you You shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. And the literal text here is the aspect of credits and debits. It's a ledger account, and that's the image that Paul's presenting here. As an account would make out a ledger account, and on one side he put the credits, 
the money coming in. On the other side, he put the debits, that which was owed, that which was going out. So there's giving and there's receiving. And that's what the language actually indicates. Linsky says that it was only the Philippian church that opened up a ledger account with credit and debit columns. Only you were the ones, you see, who shared with me in this. They gave, he received. Now he's going to come back to this image later on. But Paul was not just rejoicing because he had received anything on his side of the ledger. In fact, as we said, he goes beyond this aspect. He's not just looking at one side of this paper and saying, I'm so glad, look what I got. He says that you shared with me in both the matter of giving and receiving. He goes on to say in this text, I'm full. I have everything that I need. I have everything in abound from the things that you've sent me. But in verse 17 through 20, what Paul accounts here is that the real source of his joy, one of the real sources of his joy and rejoicing is this aspect of the giving and receiving and how God enters into this. He did not seek the gift but he sought the fruit that came as a result of their gift. The word fruit, which corresponds to the aspect of the prophet, was not what he received from them, but rather what they received or were received from God. So there's credits and there's debits. There's giving and there's receiving. And why was this such an important task for them to share in with Paul? Why was he rejoicing over the fact that they'd sent him a contribution? It wasn't just because he'd received money, but rather he was looking for a fruit that would be given to them as a result of the giving. He says here, you see, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Now, Paul, again, as I mentioned, returns to this bookkeeping metaphor, but he expands it. The term account is from the Greek word logos, the technical term that's used earlier in verse 15, the aspect of the opening up of an account. So you open up an account go to the bank and you can open up an account. What are they going to keep track of? They're going to keep track of when you put money in and they keep track of when you take money out. They're going to keep track of the giving and the receiving, credits and the debits. And so what Paul seemed to be indicating here is that when you sent contribution to help me preach the gospel, when you sent to relieve my need, you shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. You, You gave to me. You provided for me. But there's another account that gives back to you. That when you did this, you opened up an account with God and as you give to me, something will be given back to you. And he says, that's what I'm really looking for here. I seek not the gift what I receive. What I'm looking for in all of this is the profit that will come to you as the receiver, as a result of the fact that you have given. So Paul points out, in this particular, in this aspect, the real source of his joy. What one writer says is that their giving was actually a deposit into an interest-bearing account. And the real reason for Paul's joy was not what he received, but what he knew the Philippians would receive from their giving. And that corresponds to what, again, to what Jesus actually taught, wasn't it? Not only that it's more blessed to give than to receive, but that in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus does the same thing Paul does, and that is the aspect of physical giving has a deeper understanding. It involves a deeper transaction than just the aspect of giving money from one person to another. That when we do those things for spiritual reasons, and we do them for the right reasons, we open up an account in heaven. And we deposit treasure there where it cannot be taken away. 
And Paul goes as further as to say that when you do that, and when the Philippians did that, they opened up an account in heaven and that God would send something back. That He would provide something back for them. That they would be a profit to their account. If they're willing to give. And so, Paul rejoiced over the giving of the Philippians because it was a profit to their account. And then in verse 18, he rejoiced because he says it was a sacrifice to God. He describes their giving as a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Holman Christian Standard Bible Translation says a fragrant offering, a welcome sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now that language doesn't come out of thin air. Paul's using language that was very prevalent and common in the Old Testament with reference to sacrifice. (coughs) That when a person offered a sacrifice to God, many times it was described as sending up an aroma that God could smell. Now, God doesn't have a physical nose, and it was, there's no physical smell that would please God uh, one way or another, over one aroma over another. But the analogy is present in the Old Testament to make it clear that when a person offered to God, when he brought something to God, it was for the purpose of pleasing God. That that was what it was all about. And that a sacrifice made in the right way, with the right heart, would actually do that. It would please God as you smell an aroma. Maybe some of you did that this past week, this past week, that, you know, that turkey in the oven or whatever, or that, that, those things cooking in the house, filled the house with a, with, a, with an aroma that was inviting, maybe made you anticipate something. In the same aspect, you see the Old Testament talk about a sacrifice. When Noah came from the ark, his first order of business to offer a sacrifice, a, clean, a very clean animal, a bird that was on the ark. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, it says there, you see that it became a smell a sweet smell of aroma to the Lord. And he made a covenant at that time that he would not destroy the earth again with water. The same thing applies to later on, that the Levitical sacrifices were described in the very the same, the same way. And so the idea here is that a sacrifice can be pleasing to God. And that's what Paul said about their giving to Paul. That they took out of their resources... And they sent to Paul to provide for his needs. So what did that mean to God? We know what it meant to Paul. It satisfied his needs. We know that he rejoiced over it. But he was also happy because he knew that what they were doing pleased God. And so their willingness to give Paul was a willingness to freely give to God and his work. That's why we can make that connection that when someone gives into a physical treasury, they're giving to the Lord. Not only are they contributing to the work that will be done with what they what's provided in the sense of his spiritual work, But more in a deeper sense, in the sense that when you give anything to another individual for the right reason, it is a sacrifice to God because it pleases God. And therefore it's offered to Him for that very reason that you would do this because it's a sweet-smelling aroma. And we'll talk some about that, Lord willing, maybe in a later lesson. But Paul also rejoiced because God would pay into their account. Verse 19. May God supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, if I'm looking at this correctly, what Paul's saying is to the Philippian uh, brothers is that there's going to be a return on your investment. That's not why they were doing it. They weren't looking, as many prosperity gospel folks are, that God would provide for them and therefore they're going to give to get back. But to understand that God is able to give so much more than you and I can give and that his interest and his concern in the aspect of someone generously giving is intense. And that he will not overlook, but rather will properly respond to those who give. And so Paul may not have been able to repay the Philippians. 
But Paul's God could repay the Philippians. And what Paul's saying to them is that he will repay you. That God will not be in debt to any man. And so he said God will supply every need. Now how will he do that? Or maybe more the point, how will that come about? Well, Paul makes it clear that God's rich. God's rich. You know, you do a favor for a rich guy. <laughs> what do you expect? Well, he's got the resources, you know, he could pay me back. And I don't want to get, I think, too much of a connection to the aspect of physical repayment in this God because I don't want to take a chance of being misunderstood the aspect of some reason of prosperity or God blessing us in a physical way as the reason we do things that are right. But Paul chooses and the Holy Spirit chooses to use this particular analogy for a reason. And in the context of that, what he's saying to the Philippians is something that we need to hear. And that God is very rich in His glories in Christ Jesus. He will never have a deficiency in, pay, in providing for us what we need. He will never leave us in the lurch because he, can't, he doesn't have enough resources to give us what we need. Now certainly that's what's involved in this giving. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at this a couple different, in a couple different ways here. But if there's another text that deals specifically with the aspect of what generosity and giving mean to the Christian, it's Paul's statement to the church at Corinth about their continuing their giving to the poor saints that were in Judea. And so these passages are familiar to us because they use them to support the aspect of contributing into a common treasury on the first day of the week. And certainly they provide that authority. So let each one give as he purposes in heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. That's verse 7, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having always all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. What are the lessons here? What is Paul saying? Well, certainly he's saying the same thing in 2 Corinthians as he said to the church at Philippi, and that is that God is able to provide that you give. You might even be giving out of your poverty. You might be giving out of your inability to give. And yet God gives freely without restraint because he doesn't have any restrictions. He is able to make all grace appear to you. He, is, he, he supplies seed to the sower on abundant, never-ending basis because he is able to do that. And so the joy you see in this comes from being able to give because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul rejoiced when others were willing to give, but it wasn't a selfish thing. In fact, it rested on something that was completely unselfish in every account. It rested in what God was able to give to others. So I give why? Because someone will give back to me? Do I give because so, so that I will receive something? Or do I give because I know that that's the character of God Himself? That God gives generously. It's a noble thing for us to give to each other's needs. It supports the preaching of the gospel when it's done in a spiritual, spiritual perspective, whether as an individual or as a church. But more to the basis of it is the characteristic of the life of the Christian to be someone who gives generously. We often reference the passages in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. When all those who believed were together and they had all things in common, they sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as any man had need. So that he says later on in chapter 4 that there were no one among them that had any need. 
Now, what's that characterize? Whether we apply that to to the to the command to give in in First Corinthians sixteen or Second Corinthians chapter nine, the principle is still there. That is the aspect that God expects His people to be individuals who give generously. That the stingy-hearted individual is not someone that characterizes God, nor someone that characterizes the people of God. Another element here is that we rejoice when others are willing to give to you. If giving is a good thing, if it provides for occasion for rejoicing and, and being happy, then certainly, you see, we have to be willing to receive because it's a matter of giving and receiving. And so it can be a tendency among us sometimes to refuse help. Someone wants to help, whether we have a need or not, whatever it might be. It may be that we don't think we need the help, or it may be you see that we're a proud, independent bunch, and we don't want anybody to think that we're really in need. It might be that we're, you see we're unwilling to accept help because we don't have any way to pay somebody back if they do help us. All of those particular excuses fall by the wayside when we understand what God says about the aspect of the joy of giving and receiving. That if it's a joyful thing for people to give and receive, then I have to be able to participate on the other end as well. I have to be willing to rejoice when those who are willing to give are willing to give to me. Because I know that what they're doing pleases God. And that they're doing it to please God. And so I recognize as well the true value of giving. It's what it provides to the giver, not just the recipient. Finish reading with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, because I want us to see this in this context. Paul's telling the Corinthians the result of their generosity in verse 11. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Obviously saying that God's going to provide. And then he says in verse 12, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Now, keeping in context that Paul's encouraging the church at Corinth to continue in their uh, in what they had first agreed to do, but that is to help uh, with their contribution for poor saints. He says in this context, in this re- this regard, it's more than just the aspect of what you give will help other people. There's a deeper reason for doing this. And notice what he says. He says, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God, overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. So your generosity, what's it going to do if you give? Well, people are going to be thankful for that. Now, sometimes they're not, but most of the time they are. So they're going to thank who? They're going to thank God for that. And that's a good thing, that you would give to someone and they would, that, that would result in thanksgiving to God. But he goes on to say, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Men will look at what you're doing and they'll say, that's what Christians ought to do. And they, these people have made a commitment to live by Christ and now they're living out their... Their, their commitment to Christ by actually giving. We see the opposite, don't we? Sometimes we see people claim to be Christ and be unwilling to give. They call themselves Christians and when it comes time to give, they give all kinds of reasons why they're not going to give. So Paul says when you're giving, particularly as the Jews gave to the Gentiles, or the Gentiles are giving to the Jews here, he's saying here, this is going to have a real impact. Men are going to praise God because you're living up to your commitment. And he goes as far as to say, they'll pray for you. In their prayers for you, their hearts will go out unto you. 
So if you give to them and you're concerned about them, they're going to be concerned about you. And even though they can't give back, they'll pray for you. Now that's a benefit, isn't it? They would join in the aspect of a spiritual request that God would help you in your spiritual marriage. And then he says at the end that men will praise God because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Not only men will praise God because you're living up to your commitment, but men will praise God because the grace that God has given you. The word grace there is the word that Paul uses over... In fact, I think he uses it ten times in this guy. Isn't it interesting that you, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is talking about a monetary contribution encouraging Christians to give money, and the word money is never in the context. He doesn't mention money in any of this. But he, says, he uses the word grace ten times in this context because that's what he's talking about. The aspect of the giving is an opportunity. It is a grace, a gift from God that people have the opportunity to give from one person to another. And so people will praise God because God has given you a surpassing grace that you have the opportunity to do good with your physical resources. You can give to these poor saints. So the willingness and the opportunity to give is what Paul says is his indescribable gift here. I believe that passage sometimes we use it to refer to Jesus and Jesus is an indescribable gift and it might very well translate into that. But in the context, what is the gift that Paul's talking about? That indescribable gift is the opportunity that you have and I have to give and that the Corinthians had to give because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And the real joy that comes in the aspect of matters of giving and receiving is not in the receiving but rather in the giving and the blessings that come as a result of that. That's why Paul's rejoicing. Because in all of this, God is getting the credit. God is being glorified. Now, let me end with another question. Is there any better reason for us to be joyful than the fact that God is being glorified? A lot of things can happen in our life that make us happy, but for the Christian, the thing that makes him the most happy, the most joyful, is when God is glorified. And that's Paul's argument here, isn't it? If we call it an argument. That's his encouragement, both in Philippians 4 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. There is real joy in this matter of giving and receiving. The giver is enriched more than the recipient. God gives. And you cannot give God. God gives. So the, his giving, you see, that God gives, does not enrich him. It enriches me. So in that context, this principle is sort of reversed. I give to others in order to help myself. God gives more than I could ever give in order to help me. And of course, the thing that He's given me more than anything else is the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 15, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Oh, God gives, we must receive. But in the giving and the receiving, there is joy. Will you come to Jesus? The gift is given on Calvary for the salvation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sins, the justification of your guilty life in the blood of Jesus our Lord. But will you come and receive that gift? Receiving that gift is not just a mental ascent. It's not just a characterization that these things are true, mentally or physically. The receiving of the gift in Acts chapter 2 was a commitment to repent and turn away from a life of sin. That putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ meant that you were going to make a commitment, an allegiance to God. 
and a commitment that involved not only repenting of your sins, but as the, as the apostle commanded, be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins, that you might be free from that sin. That's the reception. Call upon the name of the Lord by receiving Him repentance and baptism. Can we help you do that? Let's stand and sing.